book of Acts, chapter 17. Guests, safe place to uh, read the Bible for the first time. You're new to the Bible. You didn't bring a Bible with you. Acts, chapter 17. All you need to do, if you don't have one, is Google or just search for Acts 17 on your device. Uh, if you include the initials ESV, ESV is an English Standard Version. You'll find the translation that I'm reading from. That'd be helpful since it's a, a rather long text this morning. It's a narrative. I'll do all the rest. You're going to want to see it for yourself. The book of Acts chapter 17, beginning with verse 16, the translator heading reads, Paul in Athens. Paul in Athens. And as you find your place, we are back. Can I just say we're back in Acts? We've been in... We've actually been in Acts for over a year, if you count the six months or so detour through the letter to the Galatians, appropriately inserted right in the storyline, and now we are in the thick of it, the thick of it. My favorite part, Paul and his companions on their second missionary journey. This is my favorite part. I was, I was actually reading this week, just freshening my mind, reading a new book to me, a description of the book of Acts, and I found it so helpful. Let, let me read it to you, just a paragraph, just to set the stage. Listen, the title of the book, 30 Years That Changed the World. 30 Years That Changed the World. Michael Green, he writes, three crucial decades in world history. These are three crucial decades in world history. He writes, that is all it took. He writes, in, in the years between AD 33 and 64, a new movement was born. In those 30 years, it got sufficient growth and credibility to become the largest religion in the world the, that the world had has ever seen and to change the lives of hundreds of millions of people. It spread into every corner of the globe and has more than two billion reported adherents. He writes, it has left an indelible impact on civilization, on culture, on education, on medicine, on freedom, and of course, he writes, on the lives of the the countless people who believe. And the seedbed for the, all of this, the seedbed for all of this, the time when it took decisive root was in these three decades, 30 years. It all began with a dozen men and a handful of women. And then the Spirit came. That's the book of Acts. A dozen men and a handful of women and the Spirit came. Three crucial decades, and this morning, this morning we've reached Athens and the Areopagus, also known as Mars Hill, the intellectual capital of the ancient world at this time. This is it. They, it's still, and, and much of this is still there. If you tour Greece, there's plaques and signs and even street names after the people and places and events that occur in our text this morning. You can get on a plane this afternoon and by tomorrow morning you could see all of this for yourself. So fascinating. Would you look with me? I'll read then pray. Acts chapter 17 beginning with verse 16. Follow along. Luke writes, now when Paul, verse 16, was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. 
So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Verse 18. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. Verse 19. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. It's like YouTube in the first century. Verse 22. So Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet, He is actually not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring. Verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He has commanded all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He appointed, and of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Verse 32, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Oropagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Very words of God. Join me in a prayer for understanding. Father, Father, what a wonderful gift. Wonderful gift your words are to us. They have been carried. They've been carried to us by the work of your spirit through men and women who have risked their lives so that we have a book sitting in front of us that relays your words to us. Revelation of things we wouldn't know if it were not for this book. And so we thank you.
What a gift it is. Father, help us to understand and hear these words. It's a long narrative. It's full of all kinds of details. Help us to perceive what it is that You want to say to us this morning. Delight us as we consider again Your plan to save humanity one sinner at a time. Fill me with Your Spirit that I might preach with boldness and courage that your, your words would bear fruit in all of our hearts, starting with myself, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, my wife, Kiersey, she doesn't know I'm going to say this, and I and Willow, our youngest, have been watching a TV show called Alone. Now, don't spoil it if you've seen this show or any of these Alone. It's a survival competition on the History Channel, watch it on Netflix. It follows 10 participants who document themselves with GoPro cameras all over them, attempting to survive in the wilderness, if you haven't seen this, for as long as possible. It's cold, there's bears, there's wolverines. I didn't even know those were real things. I thought those were just made up in movies, but there's wolverines. It's as real of a survival show as you can get. The one who's, and the one who stays out the longest, here's how the show works, the one who stays out the longest alone wins a million dollars, right? Uh, you, get to, <laughs> listen, you, get to watch, you get to watch these 10 contestants suffer, oh, and they suffer, as they starve, and that turns out to be most of the game, is who, who's got the most fat when they get into the game, who, who can make it the longest. They starve, and they struggle, and some of them, they lose it mentally. They go nuts, all the while, all the while knowing that at any moment, it's their choice. It's their choice. They can pick up a phone. They're all given a satellite phone. They pick up a phone and tap out. They can give up. Anytime they want, a helicopter will swoop in, rush in, and, and, and rescue them and evacuate them back out into civilization where there are things like donuts and, and food just waiting for them. Sure enough, one by one, as the season goes on, the show goes on, they all give up. It's always surprising which ones don't give up and which ones do give up, and I'm not done with the season. It's not the latest season. I'm probably like 10 years behind. Don't, don't spoil it for me. They all give up. All of them give up except for one who would have given up if no one else would have given up. But sure enough, one by one, they all give up except for the last one. Everybody gives up. And of course, the funnest part of the show, other than watching them suffer, which I know sounds weird, but it is entertaining, Funnest part is that from the comfort of my couch, as I eat my last night Oreo ice cream, I am fully and thoroughly convinced that I would never give up. <laughs> I, I wouldn't give up. Why are they giving up? Come on, that's nothing. You just fell, broke your leg, suck it up, make a cat, whatever. You're a survivalist. I would never give up. If it were me and I was in the wilderness, I would be the last one. I would remain alone. It sounds kind of glorious on day one. I, and that's how they would talk. The contestants, I'm going to be all alone, just me and nature. I would be as long as, alone as long as necessary. Giving up, tapping out. Tapping out would not be an option for me. For me. And you know, I, so I was thinking about our text and what we've been reading the last month or so, I think this is the way we read Acts as well. 
We say to ourselves, consciously or subconsciously, I could do that. I see myself there. I would stay in the game. I would be there with Paul, the apostle, and in Philippi, and Thessalonica, and Berea, and now Athens, and the Oropagus. I wouldn't tap out or give up. It doesn't matter how many times I mocked, and stoned, and imprisoned, and run out of town. I would never give up. It's not an option, even if I were the very last one. All alone. All alone, just like Paul is in Athens. He's all alone. Perhaps it's because we're so far removed. This all seems kind of strange, unfamiliar. Or, or, or perhaps it's because our faith, the Christian faith, has been around so long that it's easy to forget what it was like when it was new. Before they had the rest of the chapters of the book of Acts. Maybe we've forgotten. Maybe I've forgotten. Because for sure, for sure, if I was a betting man, eventually, most likely, 10 out of 10 of you and me, I include myself, would tap out. In fact, I think we are smashing the button all the time. And in fact, I, I, and the fact that Paul hasn't picked up the satellite phone at this point in the game should be, quite frankly, for us, astonishing. I kind of just assume he would still be there. Of course this is what he would do. It's astonishing. But, listen, let's not get the sidetracked. That's not the best part of this story. It's not the best part of this story. For as astonishing it is that Paul hasn't given up yet, all the more we must be astonished. If we see it and it's so easy to miss, be amazed that God Himself is still in the game. Has not given up. Has not phoned home. This is stunning. It pulled eject. And in fact, it's what keeps Paul going. I think it's what keeps Paul going and can do for us as well. Even 2,000 years later, here in Old Town Orange, in your family, in your workplace or your school, classroom, even in the great state of California. God never gives up. God never gives up. Paul, Paul arrives at the shore of Athens fully convinced. In spite of everything he's seen and he's about to encounter. Fully convinced and we must be as well. As we, as we leave here today, as we do every week, giving up is not an option. It's not an option when you know that he won't give up. Yeah. Listen, if you think the world is going to hell in a handbasket, <laughs> and that there are wicked and evil forces at work bearing down on us, it's true. It's true, but as I'm just reminded what, what John writes elsewhere in the New Testament, he who is in you and hasn't pulled a jack, he who is in you is greater. Greater than he who is in the world. God is still at work. God is 
with us, working, saving. You're a living testimony to it, a trophy of His grace. And this brief window into this special moment in redemptive history isn't designed to convince us how much of a, how strong a survivalist Paul is as he's all alone in, a, in Athens, or how great of an orator Paul is, but rather to convince us, once again, to join Him, Jesus, by trusting Him that the only one, the only one who never gives up. Look with me again at the text. Let me show you. I, so easy to miss. Verse 16 Look with me again. The, the first of three points. We, God, God never gives up. See, see the world through God's eyes. Verse 16. That, that's what Paul's doing here. Verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, if you remember, if you missed it last week, he had he'd gotten run out of the last city, Mrea, last week, and was sent by ship alone. He left his team with him, Silas and Timothy. He leaves them behind. He says, come as quick as you can, but he leaves them behind. He's run out of town, verse 16. Now, when Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Quite literally, according to historians, Athens at this time was like a junkyard. It was a junkyard of idols. There were more gods in Athens than people. The estimate is 30,000 some gods. 30,000 specific idols. Like a, like a forest of statues. As opposed to the 10,000 Athenians. 30,000 to 10,000. It's kind of like how many people live in Old Town Orange versus how many coffee shops there are in Old Town Orange. 30,000 to 10,000. <laughs> With more coming. And Paul's response could have been a, any number of things. He could have responded in any number of ways. He could have been outraged. Look at what's going on here. This is disgusting. He could, he could have been hopeless. Oh, this place is too long gone. He could have been repulsed by the whole thing, got off the boat, and thought, this is exactly what I just left. And they had chased me out of city after city after city after city. And here I am again. Look, they're doing it even worse than everyone before. He could have just hunkered down in his hotel room and just ordered DoorDash, right? Waited for his companions to arrive so they could get out of town as soon as possible. This place, long gone. If there ever was a place that on the surface appeared wicked and debased and too far gone, so offensive that any self-respecting, God-fearing, right, church person, moral man or woman would want to disassociate themselves with, it, it was Athens. It was Athens. There, there was no end in Athens to the like pseudo-spiritual, alternative lifestyle, pluralistic, whatever's good for you is good for me. And whatever's good for me better be good for you <laughs> and true for you. There was no end to the number of challenges in opposition to what Paul was bringing. <laughs> and, and just to be clear, the, the Athenians weren't asking Paul to tell them about Jesus. They weren't asking him to tell them about Jesus, but apparently Paul believed 
that they needed to hear. That he should tell them anyways. What, verse 17. Verse 17. This is Paul's custom. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout person. He went to his brothers. And it says, and in the marketplace every day with those ha- who happened to be there. Verse 18. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. The smart people, the intellectuals, the great ones. And there's a lot of them there in Athens. And some said... What does this babbler wish to say? <laughs> what does this babbler wish to say? Others say he must be preaching a foreign, he must be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. You'd think that Paul had learned his lesson in all the other cities he had visited. The crowd mocked him, they derided him, they called him names like babbler. They weren't looking, they weren't asking. I think at this point I would have been cynical. When it says, verse 16, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. That provoked, if it was my biography, probably would have meant repulsed. But not so. Not, not so. Not for Paul. Not for Paul because Paul saw the city through the the same lenses that God saw Athens from his perspective. So Paul, Paul was full of compassion. Paul was full of compassion. And instead of pulling back and retracting from them, he moved towards them. Why? The same way the Savior responded to the crowds. As the Gospels attest, when Jesus, when he, Jesus, saw the crowds, what did he do? He, Jesus, had compassion for them. Why? Because they were helpless and harassed like sheep without a shepherd. That's how Paul saw Athens. Sheep without a shepherd. Lost in a sea of idolatry. Paul was full of compassion. He saw the city the way God saw Athens. And listen, if we could just stop here for a moment and say, if only we could see Old Town Orange the same way. Or our families, your family, whatever family member you're thinking about right now. If only we would see and be provoked and that provokedness in us would elicit compassion and love. Reminded that once again, God is with us. God is there in Athens. God has not given up on them, and neither should we. Neither should we. See them through the same eyes. Point number two. Point number two. Share the gospel with God's heart. Share the gospel with hearts. See and then share. Verse 19, apparently Paul has been preaching about Jesus and his resurrection. Verse 19, and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. What an incredible opportunity, doesn't it appear? What an incredible opportunity. Not entirely surprising since Luke 
records, verse 21, he wants us to know. It's not totally surprising. Now all the Athenians, verse 21, and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. And just stop for a second and and just acknowledge, nothing has changed. Nothing's changed. Even when we feel like we're attracted or we look in the culture and we say, man, people seem to be attracted to the old and to the ancient. They're attracted to the old and the ancient because the old and the ancient is unfamiliar and feels new. And as soon as it gets old and worn out, we go on to something else again and move on. Listen. Listen, you, you could say he, are, he had a ready-made audience. They, they love talking about stuff. However, don't lose sight of Paul's motive. He is seeing Athens the way God sees Athens and, has con- and has, <laughs> this has conditioned the way Paul shares the gospel, the good report of Jesus and his resurrection with him. He could have come out with a hammer. He could have come out swinging, condemning, arguing with them all about their false gods, their errors, the errors of their way, the foolishness of their thinking, the emptiness of their philosophies. I'm sure Paul had lots of material to work with. He saw it, had compassion, and then wanting to, wanting to help, he could have come out swinging. He had lots of material. He could have majored on some pretty major things. But observe, but observe, he, had, he, he was moving towards the Athenians because of his concern for them. And I know that because he was risking, once again, his very life to share with them the gospel rather than whatever was at fashion at the time. <laughs> Probably something they're already debating or discussing. He could have went with something controversial, but not life-threatening. No, instead, he saw their need with God's heart, their greatest need, and as gently and carefully but courageously and without compromise, risking his very life, he spoke the truth. He spoke the truth. The the bulk, listen, the bulk of our passage this morning is a summary of what was probably most likely hours. A good chunk of a day worth of preaching and debate. Oh, we would all like to have been there. Some would even say that every sentence that's recorded there in those verses uh, uh, it was the, a, a point in his presentation. So he had like a 30-point presentation or sermon. And of course, we don't have time to dissect it all, but, but if you could just notice a few things. Notice this about what he speaks to them as he speaks to them the gospel with God's heart, not, not a hammer, not a gotcha, but courageously the truth. Watch, like verse 22, how respectful Paul is. Watch how respectful Paul is, verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. He, he doesn't discount them, write them off, or just run roughshod over them, ignore what's going on there. He acknowledged them. He's respectful towards them. You are very religious. <laughs> Notice also, he knew their audience. Verse 23. 
Verse 23, he knew, he knew those that he was speaking to. For as I passed along the way and observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. He's observing. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. This, listen, Paul, Paul's not going to offer him some sort of generic answer to gen, a generic set of people suffering from generic tr- errors and sins and truth. Paul, Paul's observing them. He's listening to them. He's learning what he can from them. You might say he understood them. He didn't just walk in and bring the same dog and pony show that he did in those previous cities. He understood the Athenians. How how many times have you and I, just stop for a moment, again, stop for a moment. How many times have you and I, I said, I've said, I probably said this week, I actually thinking back, I know I said, you said, I just don't understand. I observe something out there in the city, whatever it is, I see it the way God sees it. Oh, they're helpless and harassed and I have compassion for everything, everywhere around me when I'm on my best day. And then my next answer is, I just don't get it. Don't they see it? Do you ever say that? I, I just don't understand why my neighbor does the things that they do. Or that person on the news says the things they say. Or believe the things they believe. They, they, they don't add up. But Paul... Paul goes through his Rolodex. He starts pulling out everything he knows about them. Paul, Paul goes on to quote their poets and their philosophers. He, he starts making connections for them. He doesn't assume anything. He assumes, if he assumes anything, it's that they, they don't know anything. He's respectful. He's respectful. He knows them. And he's trying to make connections. He's speaking their language. But one last thing, if you could just notice in his speech, his sermon, is that he calls them to repent. Verse 29, you've got to get there. This is how I know that he sees them and he's speaking to them with God's heart. Verse 29, being then God's offspring, he, he's led them up to it and it's fascinating read it later and just watch the movement going through from start to finish he starts at the very basic basic stuff and he gets all the way to and then he gets to the point where he says even you know that God made us we have a creator he says being then God's offspring we ought not to think that the divine being (laughs) that a great way of saying instead of like the Lord the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. There's this gotcha moment. The times of ignorance God overlooked. And if you just, that phrase right there, the times of ignorance, if you know your Bible, think about mystery long held, like Paul in Ephesians, now revealed. The times of ignorance are over. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. He preached the good news of God's patience and his mercy and his grace and forgiveness for sins. Paul, Paul, Paul spoke as if he knew a God who was generous. A generous God and offered to these Athenians 
The same thing he had been offering in all the other cities to everyone else says not a theory of like you know like economics. Like let me tell you a little bit about how you're running your city and how I, it's not very godly or divine beingly. He, he, he got to the point. He, this wasn't a princi- so a set of principles on how to how to even to live. He got down to the end, and his point. The punchline was the gospel. What, what could be more overtly a demonstration, a communication, a signaling of Paul's, and this is for us as well, Paul's understanding of God's heart for the Athenians than to know that even if it would cost my life, and for us today, even if it costs our lives, even if my neighbor thinks I'm weird, Even if it would cost his life, he was going to talk about his beloved son and how God the Father would give God the Son to the Athenians that for those who would believe and would trust in what Jesus had done on their behalf would be saved, forgiven, freed from this forest of idols and all their empty philosophies We know he's preaching the gospel because verse 32, he gets there. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, Paul's laying it down. He's not compromising. Some mocked, no surprise. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. Now listen, here's where it gets really, really joyful. Last point, point number three. Rejoice over those God saves. See the world through God's eyes. Share the gospel with God's heart, rejoice over those God saves. Verse 34, the best verse. But some men joined him, Paul, and believed. Among whom also were Dionysius, the Oropagite, and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. Those two names there, so fascinating. Dionysius, he would have been a leader. He, he would have been an influencer here in Athens and in the Areopagus. He, he was in charge. He, he was Paul's match. The guy with the greatest stature, the guy that everyone in the room, every time Paul would say, blah, 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 and resurrection from the dead, everyone would turn and go, what does Dionysius think? And Damaris. Throughout Acts, you're picking up. There's always this mention, and some women, some women of respect, some women of uh, stature. Those, those that in this culture might have been the least of the least. These two names, listen, though they're not found anywhere else, become the source of 2,000 years worth of rejoicing over God's saving activity, even in Athens. Dionysius, this leader, he becomes a pastor. He becomes a follower of Christ. He becomes a church father. He, he writes many volumes. He writes many books. He becomes the bishop overseeing all the churches throughout this city. Luke records their names as he's recorded many of their names as Paul's collecting disciples. He records their names 
that those that would receive this book later and would know a little bit about these two would rejoice. They would, they would get a little bit more of God's heart that he's not giving up and he is at work and he is still saving, that he's with them and he's with us and, and throwing in a few stories and testimonies and names of people that, that God has ransomed, rescued. It, it reminds me of Zephaniah. Old Testament prophet who writes, thinking of how the Lord rejoices, he says, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. This is what the Lord does. The Lord rejoices over what His Son has accomplished. Redeeming people like Dionysius and Damaris and, and, and you and I and many, many others that have walked through those doors and we have sent out into the world. We rejoice over those that God saves we rejoice over those gods that says we, we recall the names. We tell the stories. We, we cultivate the memories. Listen, listen. If we, tr- we treasure these. And, and if all you have, listen, this is an invitation for you. If you're here today, whether you've been here, this is your first time, 100th time, all you have maybe are a bunch of stories from church history of wonderful stories of missionaries and maybe some great convert, and, maybe, and, the, and these two names here now, you can put those on your list. A, a few names and stories of how God continues to save and has not given up, has not stopped. We can hold t- true to His promises because I know that, you know, I was thinking recently, like, like Elizabeth Elliot loves the Lord even though his husband was killed on a missions trip. Her husband was killed on a mission. If that's all you got, let me encourage you to throw yourself into a local church. I say this all the time, and it bears worth repeating, that the more you get to know us, eventually, as you get to know us, like clockwork, if you're new, you're going to come up and you're going to say, hey, hey, Pastor Dustin or Pastor Mike or, hey, Eric, hey, did you know there's a lot of stuff going on in the life of this church? There's a lot of people struggling. There's a lot of people in all kinds of trials. There's all kinds of stuff going on. And like clockwork, you also start to say things like, I, I'm rejoicing in how God is at work in, and then you fill in the blank. If you don't know anybody, all you can rejoice in is somebody you look up on Wikipedia, Christians throughout the ages, whatever it is. But, but for you and I, for, for those that are united in a local church and actually know those that God is saving today like He was saving in Athens. There's a lot of joy, a lot of joy in the room as we see the world, see our world through God's eyes. We share His Gospel with His heart and rejoice over His people. And let me end here. First and foremost, for each of us this morning, and this is we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. First and foremost, we're reminded not only is He not giving up on Old Town Orange, He's not giving up on you. The Almighty, the Almighty will finish what He has begun. Never quits on you, 
never quits on California, Old Town Orange, the Terbetsky family, fill in the blank. He is patient and gentle and wise, wisely wooing you, saving us. And our hope is, our hope is that He will hold us even as we boldly proclaim His saving grace to this world. Would you pray with me? Father, Father, thank You for, again for recording these events in Your book that we could read them and be encouraged by them, be instructed by them. Lord, I pray for myself. I pray for all of us in the room who have trusted You and are now redeemed and united to You and swept up into Your purposes and Your plans. Father, would we be convinced that You don't give up. Don't give up on us as discouraged as we can be in ourselves. And you don't give up on the next city or community or family that you call us to preach your gospel. Lord, give us, give us your eyes and your heart. Give us your joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>